three services. He said in the first service, as he got all choked up, he'll do better in the second service, and he didn't. And then the second service, he said, I'll do better, and he didn't. And I would rather have passion and content um, any day um, than eloquence. So encouraged by what God has called them to do and how they surrendered uh, to do it. And by the way, while I'm on the topic, if you're looking for eloquence, you're in the wrong place. Sent a couple of my um, girls, a couple of my daughters, twins, to college up to Liberty University in Lynchburg this year, and they began the, they began the church search, just trying different churches every, every Sunday, and, and then we would kind of connect with them, how was, where'd you go this morning, how was church, and and uh, they'd give us kind of the rundown. And then when they turned 18, we went up there uh, uh, Sunday after services. We went up to take them to dinner for their birthday. And we're sitting around out back and began the conversation. Well, where'd you go to church this morning? How was it? And, you know, then I asked because, you know, I want to know. How was the sermon? And, and uh, they began talking. It was just okay. And I'm kind of going, yeah, well, you know, you're a little spoiled. And, and, um, <laughs> and, I, and so I, I said, well, I, I, I just happened to, to know that the, the sermon at Alliance this morning was particularly good. And one of them looked up and said, oh, really, who spoke? (laughs) I've disinherited her. Just come through Thanksgiving, a time when we as a nation try to be thankful. As a church, we recorded a few family members to... to share with you during the month of November, you maybe remember that we, on, on the video, we were trying to cultivate a heart of thanksgiving. And then at our Thanksgiving dinner, uh, we asked um, Edward Densham to, to share his and Bethany's story, which was, which was actually incredible. And, and all of that, by the way, it, it, it wasn't intentional, but it was amazing how many of these Thanksgiving stories came in the midst of great trial. Did you remember that? Murdered parents, multiple bouts with cancer, bicycle accident, kidney failure, abandoned Down syndrome children, a shooting and beatings for the cause of Christ. And yet in the midst of all of those challenges, many of which we will never know, there was great praise and thanksgiving to God. Here's my question, how? How how do you do that? How do you cultivate and keep the heart of thanksgiving when things aren't going well? Now, one way I tried to encourage that was through our study in the life of Joseph, to, to remind us that we have a good and sovereign God who is working all things together for our good while all things are, are not good, and we, we, we've certainly had some, some bad things in our family. All things are, are for our good. Great. So do we just buck up? Do we just kind of take the misery knowing that something better is, is coming? promotion, if, if not to prime minister, at least a promotion to glory. Is that it, or, or is there something else? Last week, I suggested there is a better way for followers of Christ. 
through our introduction to the book of Philippians, we, we took some time to be reminded of the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. Here was a guy who, who, who faithfully served the kingdom, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, planting churches everywhere he went, and he paid dearly for it. I won't recount all his numerous trials, but, but he wrote Philippians from prison. And the amazing thing is, one of the, he's writing from prison, and one of the main themes through the letter is joy. In front of your bullets, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. How? How did he do that? How could he find joy in the midst of dreadfully dark circumstances? And the truth is, as we read through the book, we'll find that he even faced the real possibility of death. He says in chapter 2, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering, meaning even if I die, I will rejoice and share my joy with you all. How did he do that? How, how do people find joy? The people in the video, how do they find joy in the midst of great sorrow and life's trials? I believe we'll find out as we make our way through the book of Philippians. And I'm going to share a, a few ways this morning as we jump into the text. Philippians chapter 1, let's begin by reading the first six verses. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy. There it is, joy, the first time of 15 times the word's used in the book. In my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That sure doesn't sound like a guy who suffered so much. It doesn't sound like a guy uh, who spent years in prison, the last perhaps four years of his life in prison for the cause of Christ, for doing what was right, how did he do that? How did he find joy in the midst of great struggle? Well, we're going to see a few thoughts in those verses that I just read, the text today. Let me give you the outline as we get ready to jump into it. We're going to look at the writer and the recipients. We're going to look at the greeting that's as far as we're going to get, but I have on the outline the Thanksgiving as well, verses 3 to 6. Let me start with the writer in verse 1. The letter actually starts by identifying two senders, Paul and, and Timothy. Now, we remember Timothy joined Paul in Lystra, that's where he was from, uh, during Paul's second missionary journey. Timothy's father was a Greek, his mom was a Jew. And he became Paul's rather constant traveling companion. He's in the salutation, the beginning of, uh, of six of Paul's 13 letters. And, and Paul referred to him as his, as his son in the faith. Uh, later, Paul would write two letters to, to, to Timothy that, that, that bear his name. Timothy was with Paul when they founded the church in, in Philippi. And, and in chapter 2, uh, Paul says, I'm, I'm getting ready to send Timothy to you. He's an important fellow. But, but why last week did I say that Paul wrote the letter and, and, and not Timothy? Well, 
As is customary in the rest of the letter, the writer refers to himself in the first person singular. And that's obviously Paul. So, so Timothy was likely Paul's amanuensis, his secretary, his scribe, who, who wrote while, while Paul dictated. Now, it, maybe Timothy added a few things. Now, there are a couple of interesting things to note about this first verse. First, Paul does not refer to himself, as he usually does, as an apostle. Uh, he, he usually starts his letters, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. He doesn't do that to, to, to Philippi. This indicates most suggest a very close relationship with this particular church. In fact, some suggest this was maybe Paul's favorite church. Well, he's writing to them as the founder of the church, and he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's more important to him at this point that he is writing to very dear brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, this has rightly been called a friendship letter. Now, the second thing to note is while he does not call himself an apostle, he does refer to himself and to Timothy as bondservants of Jesus Christ. That word is actually the word doulos or the word slaves. A slave is someone who is owned by and fully responsible to another. The people in Philippi would have been very familiar. There are lots of slaves in the Roman Empire. There would have been lots of slaves there. And it was not a very, well, it wasn't very a popular thing. You had no freedom. You were owned by someone else. And here Paul says, Paul and Timothy and frankly, you, you and I have been redeemed. We've been bought with a price. We've been bought out of the slave market of sin. And we've been purchased by a new master, Jesus Christ. He owns us. We don't have our own personal freedom. We are to do His bidding. A, a slave has no will of his own. He does the will of his master. And you sit there and you go, well, I feel like I've got an awful lot. An awful lot of freedom, is that? Well, that might be the problem. Now, Paul refers to himself and others as doulos, as sl slaves, all the time. And, and, and some people don't like that. They'll come up to me after and they'll say, you know what, I don't like being a slave. I'd rather be a, 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 a child. But you should know, if you don't like being a slave, you should know you're in good company. You see, there's only one other place that Paul uses that word doulos in this letter, and it's in chapter 2 when, he's, when he writes this. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in, in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, meaning although he was already God, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, he already had it. He didn't feel like he needed to hold on to it. In fact, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a, of a doulos, a bondservant, same word. Jesus, in coming in human flesh, emptied himself of the glorious display of his divine attributes and took on the form of a man. No, 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 not just a man, of a slave. How could Jesus be called a slave because he came to do the will of his Father? You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, would you take this cup of suffering from me? 
This, this is too much as he's sweating great drops of blood. Father, would, would facing the cross and bearing the sins of humankind on my body is too great to bear. Would you take this from me? Yet, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Listen to a talk last week where the speaker suggested that those are the most forgotten words in the English language. Not my will, but yours be done. You see, that's what it means to be a slave of Jesus Christ. I don't want what I want. I want what you want. That's different. We're more used to this is what I want. I've got it on my Christmas list. I want a nice house. I want a, I want a nice car. I want a stellar career with a very lucrative salary. I want this degree. I want that degree. I want this person as my spouse. I want, I want, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This, you see, is what it means to pray every day, your kingdom come on earth, just as it is, your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Most of us, let's just be real honest when we pray that, your will be done on earth, out here, just not in me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, is what it means to be a slave of Jesus Christ. And you say, okay, I want God's will for my life. But how do I know? How do I know God's will for a certain situation in my life? How do, how do I know what He wants? I, I honestly don't think that it's that hard. If it's a moral issue, that is, if it's a clear right or wrong, God's will is clearly revealed in His Word. I told you this a few months ago. You don't have to pray whether or not it's God's will to sin. It's not. You don't have, God, should I tell this lie? No. Why are you asking me about that? God, should I commit this adult? No. It is never right to do wrong. It's never right to sin. You don't have to ask God about that. Okay, but what about those tricky amoral, those non-moral issues, those and they're not right or wrong issues, but those right or left issues. Do I turn to the right? Do I turn to the left? Do I take this job? Do I take that job? Do I buy this car? Do I buy that car? Do I go to this school? Do I go to that school? Do I do this degree? Do I do another degree? Do I, do I marry this one or that one? As if you have a choice. Um, I really don't think this is that hard. Because I don't think that God plays hide and seek with His will. If you're really, really lucky and search really, really hard, maybe you can figure it out. I don't think he does it like a four-leaf clover. And if you'll search and search and search, maybe you'll get lucky and he'll, you'll know his will. You see, if you are a bond slave of Jesus Christ, you adopt the posture of, not my will, but yours be done. Lord, I want to do exactly what you want me to do. In every situation, in every situation, in this in this situation, then 
having clearly surrendered your will to him, Lord, I want to know what you want me to do. I want to do what you want me to do. Then you do whatever you want because you have surrendered your will to his. Then you see the job you choose may not be the most lucrative. Then the car you choose may not be the most expensive or the most flashy because, well, then you wouldn't be able to be as generous as God wanted you to be. Then the spouse you choose, well, I'll let you figure that one out. The point is, we surrender ourselves as slaves. And if we end up in prison for the sake of the gospel, not my will but yours be done. I can do that. Can I remind you that Paul was hanging out in Asia Minor? That's modern-day Turkey. And he, and he wanted to, to continue to do ministry there. He tried to go to the west, perhaps to Ephesus, and God said no. He says, okay, fine, I'll go to the right. I'll go to, to Bithynia. And God said no. I don't know how. He just told Paul no. So Paul went straight ahead where he then had a vision, come over to Macedonia and help us. So he took the first ship out of Turkey, traveled um, uh, over to Europe, up the Ignatian Way to Philippi, preached the gospel, and got beaten and thrown in jail overnight. Wow, I must have been out of God's will. Really? God sent him to Philippi. Since when do we determine what God's will is based on whether or not it gets us in trouble? Ten years later, he was in prison for preaching the gospel again. And he's writing to the church in Philippi. How could he write with joy? Because he was a slave of Jesus Christ, living a life surrendered to Jesus. Not my will, yours be done. Okay. Brings us to our second point, the recipients of the letter. To all of the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. And please notice Paul uses the first of many alls or every words uh, in this salutation. But what he means by that, he's writing to everyone, not just a select few, to every person in the church. You see, he's writing to that wealthy Gentile woman named Lydia in her household. He's writing to that former Roman soldier who was now the jailer in, in his household. He's writing to that former demon-possessed slave girl. He's writing to Syntyche and Euodia, a couple of women who seem to be at odds and he's going to call out in chapter 4, but he's writing to them now. This letter was written to every person of the church, not just the select, elite, spiritual few, because the church is made up of every believer in Jesus Christ. And at this local church that we call Alliance, it is made up of believers in Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. No one is more important than anyone else. This letter is written to you. Well, that is to everyone who is a saint. That's what he says, to all the saints. Lots of confusion about that through the centuries. In fact, the Catholic Church decided that there were very few saints 
that they've identified and, and, and have been canonized by, by the Pope. Only a f- select few are saints. It's not actually what the Bible, what the New Testament teaches. You see, the word saint is the word holy ones. But, but, but notice, it's not just saints. To the saints, to those of you who are holy, to those of you who, through your own self-effort, through your own reformation processes, have made yourself holy. No, that's not where he stops. To the saints in Christ Jesus. You listen to many sermons today who seem to indicate that you need to be about the process of making a better you. Ten steps to a better you. It is saints in Christ, made holy by the work and merit of Jesus. Listen to me. You did not become a saint by being holy, and you do not stay a saint by remaining holy. You are a saint by nature of your faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. And so good news. You don't have to come back and do some miracle after you die to be called a saint. You are already a saint. You are a saint as a follower of Christ. In fact, as I did some reading this week, I'm sure that I've read this before, but someone pointed out that our preferred self-designation today is the word Christian. We're all Christians. But do you know that the word Christian is used three times in the Bible, all in a derogatory sense? It was not a positive term. This was not the term, and there's nothing wrong with the word Christian, don't misunderstand me, but this was not the term that the early church used to call themselves. They preferred to call themselves saints in Christ. So feel free to call each other that. By the way, as saints, it means that we should act like it. We should seek to see our practice meet our position. That's what Paul means when he writes that very important, perhaps, theme verse later in this chapter. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. You are saints. You are holy ones. Now live lives that demonstrate that you are, that the gospel has saved you, that the gospel has sanctified you. Now, if this letter is addressed to everyone, to all of the saints, what is this, including the overseers and deacons? Say, well, that's easy because overseers and deacons aren't saints. Just kidding. This is the only letter where Paul addresses these groups. And and, and frankly, he doesn't mention them again in this letter. Who who are they and, and what are they? Again, the only place Paul mentions them outside um, this salutation is in the pastoral epistles, those letters, those three last letters that he writes to Timothy and Titus, talking to them about how the church should be structured. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we read these words. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, there's the word, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be, and then Paul goes on to give the qualifications of an overseer. He must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, uh, prudent, respectable, hospitable, yada, yada. Paul then goes on in chapter 3 to tell us 
that an overseer is one who takes care of the church of God. Okay, so that's what an overseer does. Meets his qualifications and he takes care of the church. Now, in Titus chapter 1, where he gives these same qualifications, he also refers to the overseers as elders. And so, elders and overseers are the same person. Now, this word overseer is the word episkopos in the Greek, from which we get our word episcopal. Uh, the word could be translated bishop, and it is in, in, in many older translations. But as we search the Scripture, we find some other places that this word overseer is used. For example, in Acts chapter 20, Paul calls for the elders of the church in Ephesus to come and visit him. And as the elders get there, among other things, he says to these guys, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you, here's the word, overseers, to shepherd the church of God. So, so, so Paul is talking to some elders, that word is the word presbyteros, from which we get our word presbyter, and he says, you are elders and, I, and overseers of the church. Therefore, he says, I want you to shepherd, and that's, that's the word pastor, the church of God. So we see that, a, that, a, that, a, that an elder is an overseer, and as a bishop, is a pastor. It's all one person whose responsibility it is to oversee and manage and care for and shepherd and pastor and protect and guide and feed and, and lead the flock that we call the church. Similar passage, by the way, is found in 1 Peter chapter 5, different author. Uh, Therefore, Peter writes, I exhort the elders among you, and then he gives them the instruction, shepherd, pastor, the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. That's, that's, that's overseer. Same words. So here in Philippians, Paul is writing to the spiritual overseers or shepherds of the church. Please notice there are plural overseers in the church, meaning there is more than one elder who is responsible for the care and oversight of the body. I know, I know we have lots of churches today where there's one pastor who's in charge and he makes sure that you know it. But that's not really biblical. Also, another side note, I know we have many churches that operate more like a democracy, right? Where everybody gets a say and everybody gets a vote. And I, I know that fits our democratic leanings and, and that fits the U.S. Constitution, but very gently and very frankly, it doesn't fit the Bible. Paul also mentions deacons here, and we read about them in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where the qualifications of deacons are given, like uh, they must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, not addicted to wine, husbands of one wife, good managers, yada, yada. And the word for the word deacon in the Greek is the word diakonos, deacon, which means servant, servant. First place that we find deacons is probably in Acts chapter 6. The word's not used there, but we find that there is a, there's a group of, of, of men who were selected to care for the widows in the church at Jerusalem. And so from this, we understand that deacon ministry, from the word and from, from reading about deacons, is a service-caring ministry. Again, notice it's in the plural. There are more than one deacon in the church. So, all that to say overseers, elders, and deacons are positions of responsibility in a local church. 
But again, why does Paul single them out if he is addressing the whole church, if he's talking to all of the saints? Why does he single them out? Some suggest, and I think that they're right, it's because he's going to call for unity in the church. There's apparently some division, and he's going to call for them in the midst of potential heresy to stand firm in the faith. Now, get that. He's calling, he's singling out the leaders of the church to make sure that they understand that leaders are to lead in unity and in the truth of Scripture. That means elders and deacons and deaconesses, that comes from Romans chapter 16. That means that they are supposed to, of all people, lead in unity and truth. The last place that division should be found is among elders and deacons. Having identified himself as the writer, Timothy as the scribe, Philippians as the recipients, he moves on to his normal greeting. And a normal greeting in a Greco-Roman letter at this time would say the word greetings. It it would identify the writer and then the reader, and then it would have a hello, almost kind of like our emails today, identifies the writer, the recipient, and then has that subject line. This is is the way that that you did this. Well, Paul took that word greetings, which is the word karain, and he mixed around a couple of words to be charis, grace. And then he adds the typical Hebrew greeting, peace. In other words, he's not just saying, when it was Paul, he's not just saying, hello, but he's saying, grace to you and peace. Because you see, for Paul, the gospel touched everything that was about him. Even his hello was saturated with the gospel. And, and, and by the way, this is the way it should read. Grace to you and peace. Many translations try and smooth that out. Grace and peace to you. That's not actually right. It should be grace to you. You get grace first, which results in peace. Peace with God and peace with your brothers and sisters. Now, those blessings of grace and resulting peace, notice, come from the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't miss the fact that Paul equates two members of the of the Trinity, grace, that is God's unmerited favor, comes from the Father through the finished work of the Son. Peace with God comes through the Son's work of reconciliation. We who were enemies with God have been brought to be at peace with Him. And this idea of peace means more than just no fighting. It means it speaks of wholeness, of relationship with the Father. So, Paul can find joy in the midst of trying circumstances because of the grace and peace that is his from the Father through the Son. He might be imprisoned. He might be in trouble with earthly authorities because of the gospel. But he has found favor with God. He's found peace. Don't overlook the fact that that joyful contentment is sourced in, is grounded in our relationship with God through the gospel. That is how we can have inner peace and joy no matter what may be happening out here. I want you to understand something. I am talking about joy. I'm not talking about happy. I'm talking about joy. Don't want to make too much of this, 
But I want to suggest that joy is like a spring that wells up from within. It's, in, it's inside. Doesn't matter what's going on out here, it's in here. Happy is external, independent on outward circumstances. So if things are going well, I'm happy. And if things aren't going well, I'm not happy. But since joy is internal, it doesn't matter what's happening. You can't touch my joy. Pastor Kent Hughes says it this way. Paul himself was in prison, awaiting possible death. This means that joy is not a result of pleasant circumstances or prosperity or success. You say, that's not what they say on the TV. Right. Joy for Paul and the biblical writers was not an emotion or a mood or a feeling, but an attitude. And thus it can be commanded, whereas an emotion cannot be commanded. You see, I can't really say to you, don't worry, be happy, unless I buy you a new car. And then you'll not be happy when it breaks down. So here in Philippians, Paul will command, finally, my brothers, have joy. This is what the word rejoice means. Have joy in the Lord. A few verses later, have joy in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And he tells them that even that if he is executed, he will rejoice and so should they. What? Even if they kill me, have joy. Because he does not urge a feeling, but an attitude. Have joy. I intended to get through verse 6 this morning. As I was going over my sermon very early, I realized I had way too much stuff. I know that's shocking. But I don't want to hurry through this. And I actually had three pages left, which will be about another 15 minutes. So I'm going to stop right here. Merry Christmas. <laughs> but how can you be merry in the midst of life's great challenges? How can you find joyful thanksgiving? Well, first by remembering you're a slave. You, you, you are a slave of Jesus. He's the master. We are here to do his will. Not my will, but yours be done. He's sovereignly in control. And so it doesn't matter what happens. If I end up in prison for doing good, okay, he's the master and he's good. Second, we remember we are saints in Christ Jesus. All of us are holy ones in Christ. This, by the way, is another key thread that runs through the, the, the book. In Christ, everything we have, everything that we are is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have, we have actually been given grace from the Father through the Son, resulting in peace, peace with God and peace with one another. I, that gives me joy. Not happy. Happy needs a nice Christmas present. Joy remembers we've already been given the nicest Christmas present ever. A baby born in a manger who would become the Savior of the world, my Savior, sins forgiven, peace with God, that is joy. And there's nothing that can happen that can take that away. In our life group, last 
Sunday. Someone asked a question. It was a great question. Can you be sad and still have joy? Dwell on that just a moment. Great question. Can you be sad and still have joy? And I think the answer is yes. Because you see, happy and sad come from external circumstances. And, and I don't want you to feel like that I'm saying that that's bad. Some of you are facing or have faced immensely difficult trials. Of course you're not happy. You're not supposed to paste it on and, and, and paste on happy. Sad is okay. Sad is expected. But joy? The world and circumstances can't touch my joy. I told you this a few years ago. This time of the year, we sing, joy to the world, the Lord has come. We don't sing, happy to the world, when thinking of Christmas. When thinking of Christmas, we sing, how great our joy Joy, joy, joy. We don't sing how great our happy, 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 happy. I'm not expecting you to paste on happy. That's what some of you have done. It's okay to be sad and find joy because of what Christ has done for you through the gospel of His Son. And let me also say, if you don't have that joy, you don't have the joy of sins forgiven, peace with God, can I say to you that you can? You can through the gospel, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Today, that greatest gift of all, the joy of Christ can be yours. If you want to know more about what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ, I invite you to talk with me after the service. Let's stand for prayer. Father, this time of the year brings lots of trappings, lots of stuff, lots of external remembrances, but would you allow those remembrances to cause joy to spring up eternal Find joy in grace that you have given through your Son. And no matter what happens, at the end of the day, we will bless you in Christ's name.